as we are nearing the end of this wonderful study of this wonderful book, as we have entitled it, No Other Gospel, we are seeing exactly what Paul is wanting these Galatian churches to get into their minds' eyes. He wants them to see that salvation is free and that salvation that is free comes and changes the lives of those that it calls. And that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning as we get into perhaps one of the more famous portions of this letter. When we began the series months ago, we began by noting just how similar Galatians and its theological sort of ancestor, if you will, the book of Romans, how similar they are. Not only are both of those letters, Romans and Galatians, coming from uh, the Apostle Paul, but they are also letters that deal primarily with clarifying, and I would even say uh, sort of showcasing, what it means to be justified, to be made right in the eyes of God. Both letters, if you read them, Galatians and Romans, will very swiftly and very, very sufficiently dismantle any idea that, that you are responsible for your salvation. If there's one thing that you can grab out of those letters, please grab that. If you read Galatians and you still think that you're able to make yourself right with God, start at the beginning again and read it over again. Because the, the, the main thrust of what Paul is trying to get across, especially here, but also in Romans, is the, the very fact that self-salvation is a delusion. It's, it's a deceitful scheme that yes, comes from Satan himself, the father of lies. If someone is telling you that you are responsible for making yourself right with God, they're lying to you. It's a categorical impossibility. We, we sinful human beings who are twisted and we are broken from the fall, we cannot ever put ourselves back together again. We cannot ever make ourselves right. And while that sounds like some pretty bad news, especially to start off on a Sunday morning, actually that's the best news of all. That's the gospel. This is what makes the good news such a delightful announcement precisely because it tells us that Jesus alone has done everything necessary to make us right with God. He's done it all. And he invites us. He welcomes us to repent and believe in him. And at once, without delay, upon your repentance and faith, you are credited the very righteousness of God as a gift because of Jesus. And then as it says in Isaiah 61, we are dressed in the garments of salvation. Or as Paul says later in the book of Colossians, he would say that we are hidden with Christ. Who is, as he says in 1 Corinthians, who is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All of that, all of that is the beloved truth of the gospel. The, the, the truths of the gospel that cannot be reconfigured or altered by us. And neither should we try to go about amending them or, or reconfiguring them or adding little footnotes to each of those things. Or otherwise, as Paul has clearly described here in the book of Galatians, we risk losing that. If you try to make little adjustments to that announcement of good news, then you lose the good news itself. This has been Paul's theme for roughly five and a half chapters. This is what the gospel is. This is what it says. This is this announcement. 
And after pressing even further into that with those first 12 verses of chapter number 5 that we looked at last time, he condenses basically all of what we've just talked about just, ha- just now into one little bite-sized phrase. Notice the beginning of verse number 13 where he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is a loaded verse. And we do well to sort of dwell on it, however briefly, because from the outset, I think it should become clear that this this idea, this announcement, this being called to freedom is basically a, a shorthand way of referring to the gospel of Christ itself. It is God. God who calls us. Yes, he calls us to be free. He's the one who makes us free in Christ, by Christ himself, delivering himself over to die for our sins. That's how he calls us to freedom. It harkens back to what Paul says in chapter number 1 of Galatians, verse 4, where he talks about Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This, of course, is alluding to that great event of the cross where our freedom is found. But yet, even still, if you focus on this verse 13 of chapter 5, we have to also understand that inherent within this call to freedom, he's beckoning us to be free because of what he has accomplished. Within that sort of announcement, that invitation, this call to freedom is the fact that we who are called... You and I, sinners, we aren't free prior to this call. We, we, aren't, we don't have any freedom outside of Christ freeing us. That's sort of the inherent message of the gospel. It's the bad news that precedes the good news. It's the law that tells us we can't save ourselves, which is followed up by the gospel which says Jesus has. And here, within this call to freedom, we have to also recognize that we aren't free in and of ourselves. We don't have freedom within our own abilities or own means. That's the implicit message of this call to freedom, that we aren't free. We're imprisoned. And indeed, before Christ, any conception of of freedom, so to speak, is just a twisted idea of it. We don't have Any semblance of what it means to be free. Freedom before Jesus is just slavery. That's that's what it means to be a sinner. You are a sinner who is in bondage. Who is literally enslaved to sin. That's what, if you want to read this from the book of Romans. Go with me to Romans chapter 6 really quick. And we'll we'll, we'll read a, a couple verses from there. Which further describe this point. Romans 6. He, he's, he's emphasizing this fact that before Christ, we are indentured servants, so to speak, to death and darkness. And yet when Jesus dies on the cross, this great announcement of the gospel, we can quite literally think of that great achievement of what happens on, at Calvary as, as a great and gracious jailbreak where he's setting sinners free. But it's also the most unique jailbreak ever. Because notice what Paul says. Romans 6, look at verse 17. But thanks be to God. 
That you who were once slaves of sin, that's you and I before Christ, we are indentured servants to sin. Now, now he says, we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What an interesting paradox Paul has just described. It corresponds with what we read back in Galatians 5.13. Remember, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You are freed to serve. This is the freedom that Paul is going to hear described at length in this section. It's freedom that we are given by Christ. Freedom to lovingly serve. It's not the freedom, and this is what our minds naturally think, this is where we immediately go to. It's freedom, freedom means doing whatever we want, doing whatever we please. And that, of course, is not the freedom to which Jesus calls us. Because much like the cross itself, which you know, we've described as a paradox, it's something that looks some way, but actually it's not. That something seemingly absurd is actually proved true. That, that, and we can think about that at the cross. At the cross, Jesus is dying, but he is also there winning our eternal life. And in much the same way, Christian freedom is, is paradoxical freedom. Because we are freed to serve. We are freed from sin and death and brought in to the life of righteousness that Jesus gives us. This sort of harkens back to what Jesus says to his apostles moments before he was about to be crucified. When he encourages them to likewise pick up and carry your cross daily. It might might sound again paradoxical. It might sound absurd but it is nonetheless true that our freedom leads To service. This is the only way to understand what Paul is meaning here. Freedom that is self serving or self absorbed is a farce. It's not actual freedom. That's just slavery. You've just changed slave masters, so to speak. It's It's a very twisted and a very warped way of looking at freedom because essentially you have to understand that saying that I'm free to do whatever I want, I'm free to do whatever I so choose, you are literally quite, quite literally putting yourself into bondage where, where, and this bondage is a very twisted bondage because you are both taskmaster and slave. Because you're saying, I'm free to do whatever I want, but you're basically uh, indentured, an indentured servant to all of, your, all of your selfish cravings, to just what you want. You're, you're a slave to yourself. And you then become your own governor of sorts, where all the desires of your flesh become your favorite pastime. So you could say, this understanding of freedom to do whatever I want is really just a pretzel of self-centeredness. And you're turned in on yourself where only your desires are the ones that you most want to pursue. But this is, this is the way freedom is painted, is it not? This is the way freedom is often caricatured by our culture where those who are living for themselves are often painted as the most carefree folks alive. But in reality, they're living in shackles and chains. They're in bondage and perhaps they don't even know it. I'm reminded of that famous novel, that short story by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. 
You're perhaps familiar with it. I've referenced it a couple times in sermons in the past, but if you're unfamiliar, Christmas Carol tells that old story of that, that grumpy old miser, Ebenezer Scrooge, who on Christmas Eve is, is haunted by three ghosts, ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, and whatnot. But if you remember, if you remember that story, and you've, maybe you've seen the Muppet version, or maybe you've seen you know, the animated version, it doesn't matter which version you've seen, <laughs> they're all pretty good. But if you remember, before he's haunted by those ghosts, according to the story, he's first visited by the ghost of his old business partner and friend, Jacob Marley. If you remember the story, Marley comes to him and Scrooge hears the rattle of chains. That's what sort of leads him to know that someone or something is approaching him. And if you've read the story, they sit down and they start having this conversation, Scrooge and and the ghost of his former friend. And Scrooge asks him, He asks his old co-worker, Marley, about his chains. And he says this, You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. And so Marley replies this, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own of my own free will. And of my own free will, I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. So Marley continued, or would you know the weight and the length of a strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since it is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in expectation of finding himself surrounded by some 50 or 60 fathoms of iron cable. But he could see nothing. I think that is a really good way of thinking about how people who think they're free are actually just living in bondage. They can't see it. There's no literal chain. But spiritually speaking, they are making for themselves ponderous chains by constantly living for themselves, living according to what their self-centeredness only wants. They might appear to be free, but really they, uh, they are in bondage. They might appear to be liberated, but they're actually in chains. Because, of course, again, there is no freedom of life where the flesh is given every opportunity and allowance to flourish. That's what Paul says. For freedom, he says, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because when that happens, what results? What's, what's the repercussion of giving opportunity for the flesh? Well, he tells us, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another, one another. You see, if by freedom, quote unquote, we mean the freedom to do whatever we want. And we, we are using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You're elevating your wants and your needs and your desires above everyone else's. You are more important. You come first. And freedom, understood this way, can only lead to destruction and conflict, to devastation and chaos, as he's just described. If you want a real life, albeit extreme example of this, just watch. Go on YouTube, go on Facebook, or wherever you get those little short videos. And just look up like car highway crashes. Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever, uh, one night my algorithm was just giving me crash after crash. And it's kind of frustrating and kind of scary to watch. I don't like watching them. But if you watch a highway interaction where cars are trying to merge and the other one's not letting one over and the other one's trying to still get in. What are you seeing? You're seeing the, the freedom to do whatever I want on display. <laughs> Almost every single time. You see those accidents. It's someone missing their exit. And so they are doing everything in their power to get all the way over traffic. To make sure they get their exit. I watched one the other night and it just led to this horrible, horrible accident. With telephone poles falling down and tractor trailers flipping over. All because this person decided to go from all the way on the left all the way over. That's a silly example. But it, it kind of gets to the point of what we're talking about with with the freedom to do as we please. You're elevating wherever you're needing to go above everyone else. And it leads to quite literal chaos. It leads to quite literal devastation. And that's just a a little snapshot, but it's a snapshot that lets us see that this self-interest and this self-absorption that's operating in the guise of freedom is actually not freedom. It's slavery. It's not freedom at all. And that's why Paul here in chapter number 5 of Galatians is giving us and he's extending, yes, us, but the churches of Galatia, something so much better than the fraudulent freedom that says you're free to do whatever you want. Now there's something so much better. Notice again, verse 13, notice what he says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what true freedom looks like. True freedom instills in us a desire to lovingly serve one another. It's not a desire that comes from us. It comes from outside of us by account and on account of the Holy Spirit being given to us. This is what freedom looks like. It looks like willingly serving for the sake of others. This is what the Christian faith is or should be known for. Verse 6 of the same chapter, it's faith working through love. Specifically, we could say, a love that dies for the sake of others. That's what this love is. Jesus, of course, is the the greatest epitome of all, is the greatest example of all, is the very one who described his mission here on earth, as he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, as one of sacrificial service. This is what Jesus says. For even, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, hearkening back, Galatians 1, 4, that Jesus freely gave of himself. He gave of his own life for the sins of the world, for the sake of others. And in so doing, he won our freedom from sin and death and likewise demonstrated for the whole world what true freedom looks like. True freedom is realized in that one word, as he just said in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love. Love your neighbor as 
yourself. Paul here is intentionally, I think, alluding to the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Who, if you remember in Matthew chapter 22, summarized the whole law as just that. Love for God and love for your neighbor. Go with me just so you can see it. Matthew chapter 22, look at what he says. Matthew 22, we're going to turn to a couple places this morning. Just so you can see how all of this is playing right into the truth of the Christian faith. Matthew 22, look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Summarizing the law this way was quite profound. And as Jesus would later say, go with me to John chapter 13. The Gospel of John chapter 13. Because the same sort of ambition, the same desire and motivation Jesus extends to his apostles mere hours before his own death. Notice John chapter 13, look at verse 34, where Jesus reiterates this in a little bit different of a way. John 13, 34, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, all of this is playing into this gospel of freedom, the freedom to which sinners are called, and the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for them is the freedom to love other people, other family and friends and neighbors as Christ has loved them. That's what the gospel frees us to do. He liberates us. Jesus liberates sinners from the clutches of sin and death in order to glorify God by lovingly serving those around us. And the service, by the way, is not done out of a sense of compulsion or coercion or force. Rather, this is the free and yes, willing and we can say impulsive service that comes because we've been given the Holy Spirit. Because we know that in Christ, we already have everything that we could ever need or want. That's the great construct of the gospel. That Jesus gives us everything, calls us to freedom. And that way we are free to serve and to love those who are around us. Go with me to one other place. Look at Second Peter. Watch what Peter says and how he corresponds exactly to this point. Notice 2 Peter chapter number 1 and look at verse 3. 2 Peter 1.3, the apostle writes this. His, that is the Lord Jesus' divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious, precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become, notice this phrase, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped 
from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel that calls us into freedom. The freedom that Christ has for us. That rescues us out of corruption and bondage to our own selfish, pretzel, self-centered desires. (laughs) Instead, he invites us to share, to become partakers in the divine nature. Or to use Paul's wording, that we might walk... By the Spirit. Go back with me. I know we're flipping around, but go back to Galatians 5 now. Because you have to see that this this inference here is the great construct of the Christian faith. That we are called to freedom, and that freedom looks like service. And it's service that is done in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Not on our own gumption, not on our own effort, not on our own strength or willpower. Because our strength or willpower, as we'll see, is tainted by sin. No, this gumption to serve and to serve willingly and to serve freely comes because we are walking with the Spirit. Notice what he says, verse 16. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify, you will not fulfill or carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these Or opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here, Paul is going to elaborate on this newfound freedom to which we are called in the gospel. But he does so in a very intriguing way. Because in these verses that we've just read, he's painting this picture. A picture of life in and with the Spirit is one of struggle. And conflict and war. And maybe we, we, don't, we, we don't always think about these verses in that way. But that's exactly the image he's trying to illustrate for us. As he says in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against. They are set at odds. They are opposed to the desires of the spirit. So here we have this juxtaposition this contrast between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit it's flesh versus spirit those are the sides that are at war within us flesh of course which is mentioned six times from here through the end of the chapter is a reference to that sinful and fallen human nature the part of us that is just consumed with ourselves Whereas the Spirit, which is mentioned seven times, by the way, refers to the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your heart and in your soul inside of each and every single one of God's children. At the moment of belief, there's no extra experience you have to have in order to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is freely dwelling inside of you by faith. And yet, as Paul says... And as Paul alludes to, both of these desires are, are pushing and they're pulling on us relentlessly. Notice again verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He's referring to believing Galatians. 
That yes, even within the Galatians themselves, there was this push and this pull, this relentless and constant struggle of things that they want to do and they can't seem to do, and the things that they don't want to do, they keep on doing. There's a war going on between the flesh and the spirit within them. Maybe you are familiar with this. Because you're corrupt and your fallen, sinful nature doesn't want you to walk by the Spirit or to follow God's lead. Your flesh will see every sort of uh, announcement of freedom as just that, and an opportunity to satisfy itself, insisting that you always come on top, that you always come first, that you always take top, top priority. And when that occurs, what happens? Verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a horrible list of vices that we shudder at perhaps reading. And yet... These list of vices that Paul has just here referred to, that he refers to elsewhere in Ephesians as the unfruitful works of darkness. You know what all of them are? All of them are just the grossest forms of self-interest and self-absorption. It goes back to thinking, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to do as I please. This is the result of that. That thinking only bears bad apples. And these bad apples look like this. Each of these works of the flesh is a result of a heart that's turned in on itself. What the reformers would call, if you want to learn some Latin, the reformers in the 1500s would call this incurvatus in se, which literally means turned in on itself. The, the more sort of common parlance is they were navel gazers. <laughs> that's what sin when it actually blooms and is in full bloom within us, that's what it is. It's navel gazing. It's my needs, my wants, my desires. At the expense of anything else, anyone else, and everyone else. And Paul is here saying, this is what your flesh is dragging you to believe and dragging you and pulling you to fulfill in your life. All of these filthy deeds are nothing but that. They're the byproducts of our sinful and fallen and fleshly nature. And this is why Paul is insisting that the Galatians, and by proxy us, resist this nature. How? By your own efforts? By your own strength, by according to your ability to keep all of the spiritual disciplines, by forming for yourself really long checklists of things to do? No. All of those may be well and good, but they will fail you. The only way to resist what the flesh wants out of you is by keeping in step with the Spirit. That's why he says, but I say, walk by The Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because you see, rather than conceding ground to what your flesh wants, those who've been called, those who've been called to freedom, who've been liberated by Jesus himself, are likewise called to walk by the Spirit and to follow his lead. As he says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
And when we do so, in so doing, we are made to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Notice verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. They don't come about by coercion or force. They come about by the Spirit working on souls. You see, while this is the most, perhaps the most famous section in Galatians, I also think it's oftentimes the most misunderstood. And it's critical that we discern what Paul is here saying. Because I think it's, it's very easy, it's, and perhaps even quite natural, to understand this section as if they are just that. They're checklists. Paul's... Isn't that, wouldn't that be so much easier? Look at, there's some things to avoid, and here's some things to do. Here's some things to practice. But the problem with that is, and maybe you can tell me that I'm right by experience, who has ever become more patient by trying to be patient? I would likely say that no one has. Patience is not something you can really work to develop, and if you can, let me know the secret sauce by which you develop that. But this once again reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit is not under it, the, the fruit of the Spirit is best understood not as some sort of list of, of prescriptions of things to do, but it's a divine description, description of what God and His Holy Spirit does in us. That's what He's saying. That when you keep in step with the Spirit, these are the things that are going to result. The fruit we bear. Is a result of God's spirit laboring in us and on us. They're his fruit. They're not ours. They're his. The result of his working. He's the one doing and collecting the harvest, if you will. See, the Judaizers, those legalistic preachers that were preaching to the Galatians, they relish in these lists because they see them as an inventory of ways to better themselves and to make themselves right with God. Here, I just need to make a list of virtues to pursue and to avoid these things. But the problem is, your flesh will not let you do these things. It will always drag you away from them. It will always drag you down. It's impossible, as we've already seen at length, this endeavor to make ourselves better is an impossible endeavor. No one can do it. That's why your checklist will always fail. It'll always fail. And more to the point, it completely misses Paul's point as he says, notice again, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Wonderfully vivid portrait is here painted. That when you repent and believe... That old nature of yours, that fleshly human nature, it was put on the cross just like Jesus. That's why he says that we have been crucified with Christ. Paul has just said that a couple of chapters ago. And yet what do we know? The flesh is going to drag us back. And every time we're dragged back to fulfill the desires of the flesh, you can almost imagine it, that, that we're playing with the nails on our old man that's crucified on the cross, and we're even tempted to pull them out, and yes, let it free again. That's the vivid picture that Paul is trying to give us, that you who are pursuing these things, you're playing with the one who is already crucified. 
The point is, leave him on the cross. Don't fulfill the desires of your flesh by running back to them. Leave that old man on the tree. Don't run back and and start fiddling with the nails. Instead, listen and live and walk according to and in step with the Holy Spirit. You see, this brings us to this beloved, beloved point that Paul is striving to make. That we don't bear the fruit of the Spirit so that we can be justified. We bear the fruit of the Spirit because we are justified. The fruit is a byproduct of who we are in Christ. That's the way we are supposed to understand this beloved and beautiful section. That those who are Christ will bear fruit. And if you want, I'm going to go to this. Go with me to John chapter 15. Because Jesus makes the same point. And we miss it, I think. The famous chapter, chapter 15 of John's gospel. John 15. Notice what he says. Jesus is talking to his apostles. This is hours before his crucifixion and death. And notice what he says to them. John 15 verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Sometimes we read, we read down through this passage and we read to verse 8. And we see what do we like to see? Bearing fruit. So therefore we say, you got to bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're not a believer. You're not a part of the family of faith. And Jesus is saying, no, you've just forgotten that you have to abide on the vine in order to do that. The fruit bearing doesn't come because the branch wants it to happen. The branch bears fruit because it's abiding on the vine. Don't you see? This is all given according to what Jesus has already given us in Christ. The more we stay on the gospel, the more this fruit blossoms and blooms and ripens within us. Fruit bearing is not a matter of checklist checking off. It's a matter of staying on the vine. Walking with the Spirit. Whose ministry is all about leading us to that. To see this whom we love so dearly. Jesus the Christ. Our first love that we have fallen away from so many often times. So here we see again that those who belong to Christ. Those who have been baptized into Christ. Will bear fruit. That's what he says. And therefore they will demonstrate who they belong to. The fruit bearing is an outward byproduct Signaling who you belong to. And the point is that our concern should be, I think, less about the fruit. And more about whose lead we are choosing to follow. So therefore, don't don't look at anyone else. Ask yourself these questions. Don't try, because again, this is, what, this is what our hearts naturally want to do. We want to look around and be like, they have like plus 60 fruit. I have like plus 100 fruit. Look, I'm a little... Don't don't get on levels. Who are you listening to? Are you who 
Who are you following? Are you listening to your flesh in this moment? Are you listening to the Spirit? Because, see, by this, Paul is giving us a blindingly honest perspective of what it means to be Christian. That, notably, that at the moment of faith and repentance, we are immediately engaged in an inner war. Our flesh is at odds with God's Spirit who lives inside of us. And while, yes, we are justified freely because of Christ, the remnants of sin, yes, even remain in we who are justified. And until He returns... We who redeemed, we live in this tension of simultaneously justified and sinner. Another Latin phrase, which I love, simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinner. That's who you are. That's what Paul is describing. Where the flesh is at war with the spirit. And this is why Paul is explaining to these Galatians, don't, don't listen to what your flesh wants. Don't gratify those desires. Instead, live and walk and keep in step with what God has already said through the Spirit. You see, because the Galatians, although they had already been made right with God because of Christ, they are not perfect. They still sin. And I would hasten to probably estimate that that describes you as well. (laughs) We are all still burdened. By the flesh that we carry, which never ceases to rage against the Spirit. Therefore, I think it's of utmost importance who you are listening to, whose lead you're following. Your flesh is that fallen nature that's still beholden by the lie that you can be your own God. It's the lie of the serpent from the garden. You know, see, that's what freedom that says, I can do whatever I want, I can do it as I please. That's just a remix of the same old lie, that you can be your own God. That's what Satan was tempting them with. He was tempting them with this twisted sword of freedom that's actually just slavery. Bondage to themselves, and we are still deceived by it to this day. The Spirit, however, the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you, who leads you, who guides you into all truth. He's the one that's going to lead you into, yes, bearing his fruit. Not according to what you do, but according to what he is accomplishing in you. And the more you listen to the Spirit, the more you live by the Spirit, the more you keep in step with the Spirit. The more you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And the more you will bear his fruit. You see, it's only in and with and by God's Holy Spirit that we ever experience true freedom. Because by the Spirit who dwells in us, He's the one who ministers to us all of the great accomplishments of the cross. You see, this is the great and magnificent objective of the Holy Spirit. If you're in John chapter 15, if you aren't, that's fine. We're just going to read this verse. Notice what Jesus says about what the Spirit's job is. John 15, 26. When the Helper, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. How does the Holy Spirit change you? By showing you Jesus. You know that old Sunday school answer? Any question in Sunday school? Jesus. 
It really is all about Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's mission. He's come to show you that you don't need to pursue that thing, that object, that that goal, that desire, that ambition of the flesh. Because Jesus has already died for it. He's going to keep pulling you back. Don't go back to the cross where those nails are in your old man. No, follow me. Follow me. He's going to keep showing you Jesus. Placarding that work of Christ everywhere before your eyes. That's the Holy Spirit's mission. That's why when we read this beloved book called the the Bible. And we say that it's all about Jesus. That's not just a fad. That's not just a passing thing. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us. That he's already done everything necessary. He's called us into freedom. And now we are free to serve as he so desires. And therefore glorify him. And look I know like. This struggle, this simuliustus ad peccator, this simultaneously justified sinner can be a very conflicting thing. Because some days it feels like the flesh is winning, doesn't it? This isn't in my notes, but I'm reminded, and maybe this will go, some of you won't care, but you know, the Lord of the Rings, I love the Lord of the Rings. There's a great section where the, the fellowship, the people who are trying to destroy the ring, they are in this, this forest kingdom called Lothlorien. And they're greeted by this, this elf king. And he, he alludes to this idea that this ring that was, you know, you know, if you like the mythology of the Lord of the Rings. It was forged a long time ago. It's a great weapon of great power of this great evil. And it needs to be destroyed. But it feels like this ring always finds a way where the, where the evil is winning. And so it leads this, this elf king to say it feels as if we're fighting the long defeat. That's what he says. The long defeat. Elves, they, he, has, he has seen war after war rage for this ring of power, you know. And he's seen conflict after conflict and, and friend after friend fall on the battlefield. And so he's looking, that, that moment when he says that, he's looking back off of hundreds of years of history and saying it feels like we're just fighting the long defeat. And doesn't that feel like what it is with us? feels like we're just fighting the long defeat that no matter how hard I try, I can never follow the Spirit as if, as I want to. And it feels like we're just stumbling over ourselves constantly. But I would love to say that we're not fighting the long defeat. We're fighting the long victory. Jesus has already guaranteed you that you will be victorious. And yes, while we are here and sojourning on this earth, it's going to feel laborious. It's going to feel frustrating. It's going to feel like a struggle. It's going to feel like you're in conflict with yourself over and over and all the time. Let me tell you here this morning the good news. You are not fighting long defeat. You're fighting long victory. It's already guaranteed. Not because you're so good, but because Jesus is. That's what he's, that's what he's won for you. The more and the more you struggle, the more you keep in step with the Spirit, He is going to be triumphant wherever you fail. He is going to succeed wherever you wallow. He is the one who has already won. And He invites, He's won our freedom, and He invites us to live, and He calls us into that freedom so that we, yes, might glorify Him and His Father by loving those who are next to us, who are behind us, who are in front of us, loving the ones that we sometimes find frustrating. (laughs) Walking and living 
And keeping in step with the Spirit means becoming more and more enraptured with all that Jesus has done for you. Stay on the vine, my friends. Walk by the Spirit and you will bear His fruit. Let us pray.